Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130AN-72, The Architecture of Life, Seventh Commandment, 1 Peter 1 Pet 3, Verses 1-8. Peter 3, verses 1 through 8, The Architecture of Life. First Peter 3, 1 through 8. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wise. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love of brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. As we have seen in the past year and a half in our studies of biblical law, it is basic to any understanding of scripture to realize that all of creation has a law structure. It is impossible to understand this world apart from the law structure of God which undergirds everything. To attempt to understand anything apart from the law structure is to attempt to understand man apart from his skeletal structure. Apart from it, man cannot live. When we recognize that law structure, then we can turn to any passage of scripture and see that law structure behind many declarations which do not deal directly with law. An excellent example of this is our scripture, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 8. A relationship or structure is here described. It presupposes at every point the seventh commandment, the biblical law concerning marriage, also laws concerning authority, and it speaks of life itself as a grace from God to the faithful. But how is this verse interpreted normally? The usual interpretations are sometimes pathetic. For example, a very, very large body of people who take this verse seriously, believe that it condemns the plating of hair and the wearing of gold. And so there actually are churches, sad to relate, that forbid braided hair and forbid gold jewelry. Now this, of course, is to perverse scripture because there is nothing here that forbids these things. In fact, if you are to read this as forbidding the plating of hair and the wearing of gold, you've got to go on then and logically be, as some of these fundamentalistic churches are not very definitely, a nudist, because it goes on to say, or a 
putting on of apparel. None of these groups take the logical step and go on and say, you're not only forbidden to braid your hair and to wear gold jewelry, you're also forbidden to put on any clothing, any apparel. But this would be the logic of their interpretation. What, of course, St. Peter here was talking about was that the adorning, that is, the trust of the individual should not be in the ornamentation of outward things, whether of hairdress or of jewelry or of clothing, but a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, of great price. In other words, although very frequently Scripture speaks of the loveliness of beautiful clothing, of styles of hair, of jewelry, and speaks of these as good. It also insists that everything be put into perspective. That there is a structure in the universe. A structure which says that everything has its place. That it is only when certain things are taken out of place and out of context that they become wrong. To the pure, St. Paul declares, all things are pure. Everything has its place in God's creation. So that it is not the thing which is of itself evil, but man's moral will, man's nature, which puts things to an ungodly use. So that to the pure, all things are pure. But to the wicked, nothing is pure. Everything is perverted, everything abused. This passage, therefore, rests on a law structure, on a hierarchy, if I may use that word, of value. What St. Peter is talking about appears in the second chapter, the ninth verse, that ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that is, a unique people, that he should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in the 13th verse he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king or unto the governor or anyone. Every authority, therefore, is to be respected, not for its own sake, but for God's sake. Faithfulness, requires of each that we meet our responsibilities in our appointed place, that your prayers be not hindered. The prayers of a man or the prayers of a woman are hindered if they do not meet their God-given responsibilities, if they are not of one mind having compassion one of another, loving one another, pitiful, courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise blessing. Only so, the ninth verse of the third chapter says, can you inherit a blessing from God. There is a structure. And all things have their focus in God. Every area of life must be God-centered. For to live life on terms other than God's law allows is to deny him. We have, however, today a humanistic reordering of life. So that instead of all things being to the glory of God and man's chief end being the glory of God and to enjoy him forever, we see today that it's God's chief purpose to glorify man and to enjoy man. And as a result, life is out of focus. And everything is...
humanistic reordering of life is very vividly described in a recently published book, a very superb biography of Louis XIV by Dr. John B. Wolfe. And in the course of his analysis of Louis XIV, he calls attention to the construction of Versailles, one of the greatest buildings ever put up by man, a building which not only influenced the construction of every other palace that was subsequently built, but also government centers. In fact, Versailles had a profound influence on Washington, D.C., right down to the construction of the Pentagon. And Dr. Wolf traces this influence. Then he says, by way of summing up the meaning of Versailles, and I quote, we cannot leave Versailles without reiterating that it had a purpose beyond the rest being the residence for the king and his government. This great palace is a keystone in the new cult of royalty. In the preceding eras, the great constructions were usually to the glory of God. Even Philip II, when he built his great palace, made it a monastery with a chapel as the center of interest. At Versailles, the bedroom of the king is the center, identifying the king as the highest power on earth, while the chapel is to one side. We might add the chapel was built last. The imposing grandeur of the chateau was evidence of the wealth of the kingdom, and its construction without walls and moats was proof of the power of the king's government. Versailles was a challenge, a defiance flung out at all Europe, as impressive a display of the wealth, power, and authority of the French king, as were his armies and his warships. Europe did not miss this. The century after the construction of Versailles, chateaus at Vienna, at Potsdam, at Dresden, at Munich, at St. Petersburg, and the very plans for the city of Washington, D.C. reflect the influence of the grandeur of Versailles. Unquote. Versailles was significant, says Dr. Wolf, because now in the very construction of buildings, humanism came into clear focus. Man was central. And this was carried out into every aspect of Louis XIV's regime. It was humanistic to the core. Now, ironically, Louis XIV himself was, in many respects, a devout man. And in his later days, after what really was the First World War of Europe, and his regime was financially in very sad plights, and he was increasingly unpopular. It was a time of long sadness for Louis XIV, whose reign was one of the longest in European history. And in his later years, he spent much time in grief and long prayers, and in the belief that God was judging him for his pride. But, his prayers were useless because the essential humanism of his regime continued. The bedroom, rather than the chapel, was a fitting symbol. Life now had a new architecture, the architecture of humanism. This new architecture for life had been first established by the Renaissance, but it had given way to the Reformation and Counter-Reformation and now, with the Enlightenment, was again the order of the day. Earlier in the Renaissance, Boccaccio had stated the new premise of this new structure, this new architecture of life, when he wrote, and I quote, We have nothing in this world 
but what we enjoy. Unquote. This new architecture of life that humanism gave became even more basic to the modern age with Hegel and Darwin. It took on a firmer, a harder shape with an ostensible foundation in science in the doctrine of evolution. The new doctrine of man and society and of the state was what we analyzed last week as conversion downward, to use Kenneth Burke's phrase, a conversion downward of every aspect of life. At the beginning of this century, a Princeton professor Henry Jones Ford, a very distinguished scholar, stated in a very important work and a most influential study, The Natural History of the State, an Introduction to Political Science. What the implications of the new science of the doctrine of evolution are for politics? And after his rather lengthy analysis, he, in his concluding chapter, summed up his thesis. The thesis, as he correctly saw it, of all contemporary political science. I quote, Proposition, man is the product of social evolution. Corollaries of this proposition affect the whole group of sciences pertaining to anthropology in the large sense of the word. They may be exhibited in several aspects as follows. Biological. The state is the permanent and universal frame of human existence. Man can no more get out of the state than a bird can fly out of the air. The undivided commune is the primordial form of the state, and it antedates the differentiation of man from the antecedent animal stock. The individual is a distinct entity in the unit life of the state. The individual is not an original, but is a derivative, political. Man did not make the state. The state made man. Man is born a political being. His nature was formed by government, requires government, and seeks government. The state is absolute and unconditioned in its relation to its unit life. Government is conditioned by dependence of its functions upon structure, and hence it is subject to inherent limitations. There is no absolute norm of government, but every species of the state tends to produce the type proper to its characteristics in its particular environment. Profound changes of environment produce profound changes of government. State species unable to effect readjustment of structure to meet new conditions tend to disappear, so that from age to age there is a succession in state species analogous to that which takes place in biological species. Sovereignty is the supremacy of the state over all its parts. Ethical. Rights are not innate, but are derivative. They exist in the state, but not apart from the state. Hence, rights are correlated with duties. The object of the state is the perfecting of man, but the attainment of that object depends upon the perfecting of the state. The test of value in any institution is primarily not the advantage of the individual, but the advantage of society. Individual life enlarges by participation in a larger life, ascends by incorporation in a higher life, unquote. The implications of this, of course, are far-reaching. Man is a creature not of God, but of the state. And the state is therefore sovereign. It is, in effect, man's God. The state, he says, makes man. There is no moral.
morality beyond the state. That which the state decrees is in and of itself right. And the purpose of the state is to perfect man by controlling man. This means, therefore, as many have logically stated, that freedom is now obsolete. When I was in a forum in San Jose about a year ago, presided by, over by a state senator with a Stanford professor and another scholar and myself as speakers, one of the strongest objections to my position was made afterwards by a school teacher who felt that I was totally incapable of understanding this modern age because I did not realize, and these were her words, freedom is obsolete. Why? Because we are now in an era of science, and science cannot work if you do not have control. And the state to be a scientifically valid experiment requires total control all of, over all factors. Thus, rights are derivative. They exist in the state, but not apart from the state. But, as Dr. Ford stated, changes of environment produce changes of government. But man's world, man's environment is constantly changing, and what does this mean? Exactly what he said. Perpetual changes of government. In other words, as the new left has logically stated, perpetual revolution. So that today the student's re re rebellion represents a logical inference from the doctrine of evolution and the present political science. Perpetual revolution is a necessity if the architecture of life is determined by evolution if the present scientific perspective is correct these students are intellectually honest they are taking what they have been taught and drawing the logical conclusions therefrom and they are refusing to put up with halfway measures we, in terms of scripture, accept the fact that God is God, creator of heaven and earth, then we must draw the logical conclusions from our basic premise. For its thesis was sound, and the students have done justice to it. The architecture of life is either governed from below by the primeval forces which govern man's progress, or it is governed from above. If we accept the Bible, then the architecture of life is structured with the enduring steel of God's law and must grow in terms of that structure. Of course, the most recent development of scientific perspective is that of Michel Foucault, a very brilliant French scholar, who has declared that the logical conclusion of our thinking is not only the death of God, but the death of man. The Sartre is right in declaring that man is a futile passion, and therefore the most logical step for that futile passion man to take is suicide. And therefore his philosophy is called the death of man philosophy, and it is extremely powerful today in France. It has not yet had its influence in this country. But Foucault, in an earlier work of considerable brilliance, 
entitled Madness and Civilization, began his study with these words, we must renounce the convenience of terminal truth. There are no absolutes. There is then nothing to bind man to man, nor anything to bind man to life. There is no longer the structure of God's truth, and man cannot live apart from truth. And so the only conclusion as to Paul logically draws it is suicide. But St. Peter, in our text, gives a different picture of life. It deals with the relationship of man and woman, husband and wife. But behind it is the seal of God's law structure. Obedience to God is primary, then to all authority under God, in order to serve God acceptably and to enjoy life. And to have life as a grace. Unless we see the totality of the structure and fulfill our relationship to God and to one another in God, to be of one mind, to have compassion one of another, to love, to be pitiful, to be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, then our prayers are not hindered and we inherit not judgment but a blessing. But today too much of Christianity itself is humanistic. Anything which makes man or the things of man or man's goals the end of life is humanism. To be God-centered means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Today, on the one hand, we see among our Roman Catholic brethren that the church is equated with the kingdom so that the church is made the be-all and the end-all of the believer's life. This is humanism. It makes an institution basic rather than the kingdom of God. On the other hand, Protestantism, being mostly amillennial or premillennial, despairs of the world. And so it says to people, come into the church for your refuge from the tribulation and all the evils that are to come. And so again, it limits the kingdom to the church. And it does not see God's purpose of reconstruction, God's power to be manifested in every realm of life, so that in either case, the structure of life is reduced to the church. And this is humanism. It is a reduction of the whole counsel of God. St. Peter did not, as we saw, condemn clothing or gold and silver or lovely paragraphs. They have their place. And so too do church, state, school, and all things else have their place. So too do our feelings have their place. But we can never say that how I feel about something is more important than my duty under God. To do so is to be guilty of humanism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, and to magnify God in every area of life. God's law alone suffices as the structure and architecture of life. Apart from that, our prayers are hindered. Louis XIV is a tragic figure. Few monarchs of more intellectual power. Few monarchs who achieve more in their lifetime. And yet, his latter years spent in 
tears and in prayer, but it offered nothing. His prayers were hindered because the basic architecture of his life remained the last, even as the architecture of Versailles, humanistic. The architecture of our life must come from the steel of God's law word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks unto thee, and of thy grace and thy mercy thou hast called us to be thy people, and given unto us thy law word. Make us ever mindful, our Father, of thy sovereignty, so that we never may put an institution, ourselves, our feelings, above that which thou dost require of us. Give us grace to serve thee as we ought, to rejoice in thy blessings, in everything to give thanks, knowing that this is thy will for us. Bless us for this purpose, in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. I, I can't hear you. majority, I think, 
definitely subscribe to this, the more intellectually vigorous carry it to its logical conclusion. They are being educated, but ultimately their own responsibility must be uh, final. Another question? Yes. I can't Very definitely. Very definitely. Christians should set up Christian schools. Because the public schools are socialistic schools, they are humanistic schools, they are very successful in teaching statism. This is their purpose. There is no such thing as neutrality or objectivity. The great contribution of the Marxists in education has been that they have very effectively challenged and shattered the idea that there is any such thing as an objectivity. We don't hold to the fact that it is class-conditioned, but we must agree with them that everyone's perspective governs that which they teach. Now, this does not mean that truth is impossible for any man to attain. But it does mean that every person's perspective is governed by their presuppositions. So there's no such thing as an objective education which everyone can get. Education is definitely in terms of a perspective. Therefore, unless we want our children alienated, we need to have schools which will teach our perspective. I'd like to read something that I have here in my briefcase, which I think is quite an interesting quote. It is from the December 1963 Realités, a French periodical of considerable interest. And it is an article titled Turning the Tables on Arithmetic by a French scholar, Daniel Hunabel. And this is uh, a very interesting program as he describes a Belgian scholar and his work in mathematics. And of course, this is the new math he's talking about, a particular version of it developed by this man, uh, Papi. What is Papi doing? He is trying to create elementary mathematics in harmony with modern mathematics based on sets. For example, he tells beginners, you are going to create a set. Then the child will suggest some kind of odd set, a teacher, a pickle, and a pinch of salt. Now look how important my decision is, Papi told me. I call this set S. It now exists because I have created it. In old mathematics, you contemplated a pre-established world. Today it is I, it is the child, who creates this world, who takes decisions and who is aware of the fact that he is deciding. Do you get the point, of course? The old mathematics deals with a God-created, pre-established world. But in this new math, this was written in 1963, we create our own worlds as we go along. Now, there it is, very honestly stated. If the Bible represents our faith, then we cannot agree with that. But if not, this is logical. It takes the presupposition and marches honestly to its conclusion. So you either have to have a school in terms of that premise or in terms of our premise. Yes? It's 
Yes, someone who comes to this meeting but is not here today told me a while back, just uh, a few months ago, of a statement made almost repeatedly every week and sometimes every day by a particular professor of education. And the statement was this. We cannot speak about the content of education because in a continually changing world, how do we know whether the content of today is valid when the child grows up? Therefore, we cannot educate in terms of specific ideas or concepts or subjects. We must educate in terms of change, perpetual change perpetual revolution. And when he was asked if that were a logical inference after some reflection by the particular person, he said, oh, yes. No question about it. So you see, if you do believe that there is no absolute, if there is no God and no absolute truth, then to be honest, you have to insist on perpetual revolution, perpetual change, as Dr. Ford did at the beginning of this century in the quotation I cite. Yes. What's that? Without God, there could be nothing. Without God, there could be nothing, not even revolution. which was based on the gold standard could be acceptable 
could be cashed in, but they agreed that there would be no pressure. Thus, instead of settling up at the end of the year in actual gold, they could settle in pounds or in dollars which were tied to gold. Now, the temptation here was this, and of course it was fully abused. These paper currencies, pounds and dollars, are checks as all paper currencies are. And originally they said payable to the bearer on demand so much in gold and so much in uh, silver, primarily in gold. However, both countries began to issue several times as much checks overseas as they had reserves. We have, we claim we have still 10 billion in gold. We have a, a minimum of 39 billion in paper dollars outstanding in the hands of foreign governments. Some put it as high as 50 billion. It, it, it's the same as if you wrote checks for 40 to 50,000 when you had five to 10,000 in the bank. You'd be in trouble. Britain is in even worse trouble. They have checks to the tune of about 12 for every one in reserves. Now, this means the two deadbeat countries in international trade are Britain and the United States, in particular Britain. All of them are, to some degree, uh, in trouble. So they don't want the checks cashed. And they're begging that they don't cash in too many of them. So they want a third substitute. You see, from the gold standard to the gold exchange standard, now they're setting up the special drawing rights, or SDRs, against which every country has to deposit with the IMF so much in gold. Then, against this gold that is put up by various countries, the countries who cannot get a loan from everybody else, in other words, the bad-risk countries, can then get a loan, which will be a, an entry in the books. There won't be anything printed against it. They'll be given so much credit in foreign trade. Now, this really amounts to nothing because the total amount of SDRs for the next three years is $9.5 billion. This means that spread out to all the countries, it adds up to very little per year. It's a little over $3 billion a year. Divide that three billion by the various countries who want a share of it, and it adds up to very little, say, for Britain and the United States. Even though we have oh, over 1,250 votes in the IMF, we stacked it pretty well for ourselves at the very beginning. So we've got a lot more votes in other countries, more than we're entitled to right now. The votes are based on the amount of gold. Well, what value is that? Our deficit domestically and our deficit in foreign trade runs into the billions every year. And what would a few hundred million a year add up to in the face of that? Nothing. And who, when they are, they are holding what amounts to a bad check, will be satisfied with another check that you can't cash. Now, the papers have had a lot to say about this paper gold, and the main purpose of this paper gold is to fool the public, to assure them that everything is being taken care of. But in the past week, there have been two significant acts. One, Germany. Germany has been begged by the IMF to allow them to revalue the mark upward. The exchange rates internationally are all set by the IMF, by agreement, and virtually every country except the Soviet Union is in the IMF. 
Germany allowed the mark to take its free place on the market. So it began to go upward, but not the way the IMF wanted, which was to value it very high, which would make the Volkswagen, for example, sell at a very high price in the United States and price itself out of competing with our sports cars. So by allowing it to float freely on the market, what they did was actually not to revalue the mark, but to revalue the dollar and pound in relationship to the mark. In other words, the dollar and the pound dropped. In other words, the IMF was not obeyed. It was bypassed. They said, when we find the new rate, we'll set it. We're working with the IMF, but that was space-saving nonsense. Then the Wall Street Journal revealed a couple of days ago that the various countries had purchased $100 million in gold in defiance of the IMF. Now, this means that the IMF, which since World War II has controlled international trade, international monetary exchange, and so on, is in about the same place as the League of Nations was when Italy defied it and marched into Ethiopia. It's continued to exist for some time after that. The IMF is still important. But in a week, it has twice been defied in a very serious way. So it looks as though increasingly the IMF will be important as a public relations media uh, whereby the uh, public will be given the idea that international finances are being brought under control and there is no problem. But the nations have already indicated they are, when the chips are down, going to do pretty much as they please. So the prospect is not at all good for any country at present. And fragmentation increasingly will take place. It will be, to, the, to quote the words of one very, very brilliant economist, every dog to his own kennel. Well, our time is up. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.